Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Great to have you back. Simon Alicia here with a very special guest this week. I'm joined by Adrian White. Adrian is our scientific computing lead for Asia Pacific and is an old colleague of mine as well. Welcome, Adrian. Simon, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for coming along. So um, I often tell people that um, there's, a, there's a famous saying that uh, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So I'm very happy to say that I'm in the correct room today because uh, Adrian is far smarter than me about all things scientific and high-performance computing. Um, I know he'll now be blushing because of that, but I can do that. And uh, what we will do is have him tell us a lot about what people are doing in this particular domain. So maybe, Adrian, do you want to step back and let's let's start with, you know, what is the work that researchers do? What is high-performance computing? What does the traditional world of that look like mm. before we even launch into anything cloud-related? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So thanks for the intro, Simon. Um, I, I often feel that way when I'm talking to our customers. Um, um, Amazon has a lot of really bright and, and smart people in, in the team. But um, when we go out and speak to some of our leading lights in the science and research field, um, I often feel exactly the same way. Um, we're working with some really gifted people that are trying to solve very big, audacious challenges. Um, so a lot of, a lot of our customers... Um, need access to large amounts of infrastructure and compute. Um, and as a, um, a provider that you know, gives, gives people access to infrastructure services, uh, Amazon looks or AWS looks interesting and compelling. Um, but the challenge when working with our research customers is we don't really want to talk to them in terms of virtual machines and network and disk and storage. We really want to talk to them about research outcomes uh, and, and accelerating the, the research that they can do. Um, by giving them access to the resources they need. Um, so, uh, so I guess when I, when I started working in, in the, the scientific computing team, that was a little bit of a learning curve for me. Um, I, I come from a science background. I, I studied physics and computer science, um, and I, I call myself a recovering physicist. Um, <laughs> but, but really, it's, um, it's, we're talking about solutions, and we're talking much higher up the stack. Um, some of our customers uh, are trying to solve things like... Um, they're, they're, well, they're doing cancer research. They're trying to uh, find uh, gene therapies for uh, genetic disorders. Um, we're working across a whole number of science domains. Um, and I guess the, the big ones are life sciences, uh, high-performance compute as a cross-cutting concern across science domains, uh, and then um, probably open data and um, collaborating on large data sets are the three mm -hmm. key ones. It's, it's interesting you talk about outcomes, and, and that's clearly what, what people want. And it's been interesting. I've been in IT for a while, and you often see these uh, you know, research activities and major projects where the capital investment is almost the main game, and the outcome becomes a, a byproduct because people are trying to get sufficient funding to get the supercomputer time they need or a particular configuration they require that is expensive, complicated, and very quickly outdated. Yeah. The modern way of doing things has kind of turned it on its head. Let's maybe talk to our listeners about the new world of what researchers do and how they operate yeah. with, with on-demand capability. Yeah, we can really we can really change the game in terms of the scientific workflow, and that's really exciting. Um, so. Uh, watching researchers and scientists wrap their heads around um, the capability that AWS gives them um, is a bit of a game changer and it's, it's really exciting to be part of that. So if we just look at, say, high-performance compute as a segment, um, 
you know, it's in a traditional high-performance compute world, you're typically interacting with a, a shared infrastructure of sorts. That could be a national research infrastructure. That could be a, a you know, um, a portion of a large supercomputer center. Um, that might be an on-premise HPC cluster that you've built and you maintain. But often they're fixed assets in size, uh, and you have a number of um, of audiences that want to get access to that resource. Uh, and so there's a there's a problem with sharing that resource and allocating that. Uh, and invariably what, what that means is uh, the people that look after those environments um, manage queues. Um, and queues are a great architectural principle, right? We, we know that queues let us decouple work that needs to be done from uh, systems that allow that work to be done. Um, it's a nice way of decoupling um, parts of an architecture. But in, in the world of research, queues are terrible because researchers just need to wait in line to get their computation done. Uh, and so. Um, there are different ways around that, and there are different ways of trying to, um, to, to speed up access to, to shared resources. But what we can do in AWS is give each researcher their own personal cluster. Um, and most people, when they first hear that, roll their eyes and think, whatever. Um, but sure. When, <laughs> but when, yeah, exactly. But when you spin up a cluster in 15 minutes on demand, bootstrap an interesting piece of scientific computing software on it, and demonstrate... Um, access over a, a remote session to a graphical user interface and you're running statistical models in 20 minutes or 15 minutes, people get it. Um, it's one of those light bulb moments, I think. Um, it almost reminds me when I first started looking at cloud computing five years ago and um, just getting access to on-demand servers was exciting. This is you know, taking it to a whole, whole other level. And so by giving people their own on-demand uh, access to personal clusters, we can remove the queue um, we can still give them a queue as an interface because you know software likes queues and might expect that as a sort of a software interface, um, but there's no waiting in line and so there's no additional wait time for someone to try an idea. Um, and so when we actually sit with researchers and see them working through this, you start seeing behavior change. So um, working with a, a bunch of um, uh, genome researchers, um, they're sequencing uh, a genome at the moment um, and they're assembling that genome on AWS. Um, that's a computationally intensive task. Typically what they'd do is they'd, uh, they'd run a, a pipeline that encodes all the steps that needs, needs to be done to, to assemble the, the genome um, and then they'd wait for that to complete before they tried another variation of that pipeline. Um, but what you start seeing researchers do is say, well, hang on, I can use the same data set because I've, it's just an EBS snapshot. So I can rehydrate that snapshot, build a new volume, have that automatically attached to a new cluster, running a slightly different version of my pipeline, and run those in parallel. And while I'm exploring the different options for assembling and I'm exploring new software, um, I, can, I can do things in parallel and I can dramatically speed up the way that I experiment with some of that. So that's, that's super exciting. And that's, you could argue that's a new market. Um, it, mm. to, to date, there hasn't really existed an approach that gives researchers their own clusters that, that are um, scalable on demand. It's it's a, it's a fascinating thing, and it is it is really it does tie into the scientific method as you mentioned, which is to to experiment rapidly and, and change based on the results you're seeing. Absolutely. So, because we can alter the tool sets we use, because we can alter the infrastructure we use very quickly, we can react much more much more speedily. Yeah. And I guess that's you know at a very fundamental baseline point, what we're saying is as a researcher, you can have essentially access to as much storage as you need, as much compute power as you need, as much network capability as you need for the job at hand. Mm. And there really becomes a, a higher level conversation about what tooling you use, how you use it effectively, etc. And I know, Adrian, that's a lot of work that you do, things like ALSA's flight, etc. Should we talk about some of those 
higher order capabilities that researchers are now taking advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so provisioning the clusters and doing the doing the underlying infrastructure pieces is undifferentiated, right? Um, we, we most of us know that, uh, and and that's the boring bit. What we really want to get to is the innovation, the exciting bit. The it may be it may be data science on a on a you know exploratory data science on a data set, or it might be um, accelerating compute to do Monte Carlo simulations, or whatever it is. That's really what matters, right? It's it's the investigation um, that you can do in the software versus the underlying parts. And so um, so recently, one of our partners in the UK. Uh, a, a company called Alces has been working with um, our scientific computing team over in over in Europe, uh, and they've put something on our AWS marketplace called Alces Flight, and this is a great use case or a great example rather of um, where we're I think moving higher up the value chain for a researcher, uh, and so what Alces Flight does is enable researchers to get a cluster of arbitrary size, uh, and and by size I'm talking typically in terms of cores. Um, so you could have a, a small cluster with a few cores or a larger cluster with hundreds or thousands of cores. Um, on demand through a one-click provisioning process that the, the AWS Marketplace provides. Um, now that is interesting in its own right and that's pretty exciting. Um, but what Alcy's Flight does that's a bit different is it doesn't stop at just the cluster provisioning part. It bundles something called Alcy's Gridware. Uh, and Alcy's Gridware is, think of it as a giant software repository of well-known and tested scientific computing applications and libraries. Um, in fact, there's over 750 of these libraries and, and software applications inside of Gridware. And so it takes, let's say it takes you five to 10 minutes to get your cluster. Uh, you log into your head node uh, and you, you query the, the Gridware repository and you say, how many software applications do I have at my fingertips? And you get a list of hundreds of these applications and they, they range from uh, you know, physics to uh, computational fluid dynamics to um, genomics, uh, all, all sorts of different sort of science domains. Uh, and you can install these things, they're installed rapidly, they're pre-compiled, they're tested, they're known to work, uh, and you just get started really fast. And so um, it's, it's not a SaaS solution, but it's, it's a shrink-wrapped HPC on-demand platform where you get hundreds of scientific computing applications. And this is super exciting for researchers because um, I can't count the number of times I've spoken to, to scientists that have to negotiate with their HPC administrator to get a particular version of a library installed. I mean, it, it's, just, it's, it's just not productive. Um, there are good reasons why there are those kinds of constraints in shared environments, but uh, if you need a version of Python or a version of Fortran, our scientists love Fortran, uh, installed on your cluster, you should be able to get that done. And so that's the kind of thing that flight makes very rapid and very easy. That's fantastic. And that's, that, again, that ties into getting exactly the tooling that you need and the resources that you need to, to conduct your experiment. You're yeah. not trying to compromise or... Or, or make any adjustments. One of the other interesting areas is that you know, science loves data. <laughs> and uh, in HPC, we tend to have very large data sets that are typically challenging to, to store and move around efficiently. And, and obviously, um, S3 has played a big part in the resource community, uh, the, sorry, research community, I should say, in terms of providing a, a really great platform to store, share, and use data in an easy way. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about a program that we run called the Open Data Program that is very relevant to researchers around the world? Yeah, so, so the Open Data Program is, is kind of a sister program to, to our scientific computing team. Uh, and what it's trying to do is make uh, globally significant and interesting 
data sets available to whoever wants to get access to them. Uh, so this isn't just in the science domain, um, this is across all sorts of different um, data uses and use cases. Um, obviously the ones I'm most interested in and my customers are most interested in typically relate to, to science and research. Um, but what the Open Data Program, I guess, believes in is if we make these data sets available, uh, people that may not be able to access those or may not have the resources to be able to host those themselves um, can get access to them and start doing interesting work on that data. Um, the two go hand in hand. It's no use having um, you know, the biggest computational fleet available uh, without any interesting data to work on. Uh, and um, you know, some of these data sets are big, right? So if, if you look at the Landsat 8 data set, um, that's, that's a, uh, that satellite imagery of the Earth, um, that's, that's massive. We're talking more than a petabyte of data for that data set. Uh, if you're looking at the Human Cancer Genome Atlas or the TCGA data set, um, that, that is huge as well. Uh, and there's a number of these very, very large data sets that we host uh, uh, for our customers uh, as part of the Open Data Program. Uh, and they're freely available. Um, and, and so what, what this does is encourages the use of the data, which encourages uh, innovation, experimentation, and really when, when we see successful data programs go into the, the Open Data Program, uh, we see a really um, vibrant ecosystem being built around the data. And that's exactly what you need. Um, and, and so you see startups growing up around those data sets, um, you see uh, innovative ways of interrogating and working with the data, um, even brand new sort of um, commercial models coming out of some of the uses of that, of that data as well. So, um, so that's really important. I mean, generally speaking though, um, data is at the centre of what a lot of big science is doing now. Um, and so S3 is a, is a fantastic place to do that just from a cost and a durability point of view. Um, we recently had a customer of ours uh, present at the Sydney Summits in Australia, uh, the Integrated Marine Observing System uh, from the University of Tasmania, IMOS, uh, and they host an ocean data sensing network and all the associated um, data that's come out of that sensing network on AWS. And of course, all the tools to surface and interrogate that data as well. Um, and that's, that's sizable. You know, they've moved upwards of 100 terabytes of that data set to AWS um, purely because of the durability model that they get on S3. Um, the 11 nines of durability is just so hard to get elsewhere for that sort of price point. Um, so for them, you know, their core central storage service for their multi-decadal data set is S3. And then there are other services that feed off that. Um, very similar to a lot of the other co sort of commercial customers are doing with their architectures. So yeah, um, sure. data has gravity. Um, that's a very commonly used phrase. Um, and it's especially relevant when we're talking about um, hundreds of terabytes or you know, many petabytes of data in some super science projects. Absolutely. And, and certainly one of the things we see is that desire to move greater and greater volumes of data more efficiently. And there's, there's two things that our listeners should be aware of, which is one is, of course, Snowball which is a, a physical device that you can use to copy large amounts of data from uh, existing storage subsystems you may have on premises into the cloud. Um, you can ship up to 80 terabytes at a time, fully secured and encrypted, uh, which is kind of a nice way to move very large data sets. Mm -hmm. uh, another new thing is the S3 transfer acceleration, which allows you to move large amounts of data across buckets much more quickly as well, which is very useful when you're sharing, copying and moving data around. And of course, you mentioned that the long-term storage of this data is that with, uh, with S3 lifecycle policies, you can move data between your sort of standard S3, your infrequent access S3, and of course, Glacier as well. So you can balance that desire to have your data in place for vast amounts of time, uh, whilst also being cost-effective about it and really eliminating that whole painful 
data migration piece as well. So I know that's a, a bit of undifferentiated heavy lifting we like to get rid of as well. That's right. I mean, now, just, just to jump in there, Simon. So, you know, and, and for, for, for our customers, um, science is increasingly a global collaboration. Um, it's a global game. Um, it's not uncommon for, well, it's, it's almost routine, in fact, for a researcher to have collaborators in Europe and the US. Um, in fact, uh, researchers often look for that. Um, it's just sort of a, you know, standard way of doing work. Uh, and so for them to have access to a truly global platform where uh, they can interact with storage and compute in homogenous ways. I can do exactly the same kind of work in the Dublin region as I can in Oregon, as I can in Tokyo, as I can in Sydney. And I can interact with my storage that way. And even more importantly, I can move my data between those regions. I control the movement of my data. Um, so AWS obviously doesn't move that data um, on my behalf. But if I request that data to be moved between regions and control that, I can do that. And that means I can get very large, important data sets um, that are you know, binary identical, that are exactly the same as what I saw and worked on in another region for my collaborators. Um, that's something that uh, researchers struggle with, even with national research infrastructures. Um, they often don't have access to that global reach, and that's, um, that's really important for a lot of the, the collaboration that we see globally in research. Absolutely. It's a very, very important point. Now, obviously, um, AWS is very committed to our customers being successful in this domain. And you know, there's some, some things we can do to help besides just providing um, on-demand access to, to web services. Uh, there's a couple of programs, Adrian, I know you're, you're a big fan of that can help our customers in terms of um, you know, reducing cost and being able to collaborate better. Did you want to talk us through some of the things that are out there? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting one. So while we're on the topic of, of data and moving data around, uh, it's worth mentioning a program that we introduced a few months ago called the Global Data Egress Waiver Program. Uh, this applies to anybody that is uh, doing research uh, and moving d uh, data for research purposes and that's going to have a research use um, over an, a national research and education network. Uh, so in Australia that would be RNET, uh, in uh, Singapore that would be Singaren, um, that would be Cynet in uh, Japan, Internet2 in the US. Um, there are a number of these uh, NRENs or national research education networks around the, the world. Uh, that we that we partner with, and uh, in most cases we peer with those from an infrastructure point of view, from a networking point of view as well. But what we um, what we've done is um, built a program that says, uh, for research use cases, uh, if you are moving data out of a set of AWS services like EC2 and S3, uh, we define the scope of those services, uh, and you are staying within a 15% cap of your total monthly monthly spend, uh, then we waive the egress cost. Um, and the reason we do that is. Um, there's, there's a couple of reasons. Um, researchers culturally aren't used to being charged for egress. Um, when they're working with supercomputing centers or their own on-premise HPC environments or other, other research um, uh, environments, they typically aren't used to seeing an egress charge, right? Um, and with AWS also, the egress charge, as you start moving data around, introduces a variable spend, of course. Um, you only pay for what you use and you only pay for the data you move out of these services. Um, and so we wanted to try and make that uh, a little more predictable. And so by capping the egress charge uh, for a research customer that meets those criteria, um, then we reduce cost, but we also help make their budget a little more predictable. Uh, and a lot of our research customers have very strict and well-defined budgets that they can't exceed through grants. And there are a number of other, other mechanisms they use to fund their work. So 
So the, uh, the Global Data Regress Waiver Program is, is definitely an interesting one for researchers, and we want to talk to as many research customers uh, where that's relevant. Um, I think that's something we should be turning on for lots and lots of our customers. Um, so that's the first program. Um, the other program which we're, we're, we've been um, trialing for a while and um, we've just renamed uh, is now called the, the AWS Cloud Credits for Research Program. Uh, it, was, it was formerly called the AWS Research Grants Program. Uh, we changed the name just to, 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 I think, more clearly communicate the, uh, the motivations behind the program. So the AWS Cloud Credits for Research Program is all about trying to um, lower the barrier for entry for researchers that are trying out AWS for the first time. Or maybe not even the first time, but they're, they're experimenting. So uh, typically what researchers will need to do in the first instance as they're becoming accustomed to AWS versus their existing um, environments and setup is they'll want to run proof of concepts or they'll want to pilot uh, a particular workflow or uh, data pipeline or something along those lines. Uh, and that, that involves their time, of course, but it involves cost on an AWS infrastructure side of things as well. So in other words, they'll see an AWS bill. Uh, and so what we, what we have is a program that lets researchers put together a proposal for the work that they want to do, uh, put a cost estimate together, and, um, and forward that to our, our team. Uh, and our team will triage those and, and, uh, and often, and in many cases, um, provide a, a grant or a, a credit, as we now call it, for the researcher so that they can do that work at a lower cost or in some cases we, we cover the initial cost. And so what we're trying to do there is help proof of concepts or benchmarking type activities uh, where there is reusable work that comes out of that in the form of um, you know, uh, published white papers or conferences or um, broader community impact um, in that research domain. That, that's another thing that we like to see. Um, and if there are applications that are being built that are sort of science as a service or um, software as a service type uh, applications, then um, that's something we, we love to support too. So um, I'm very keen to talk to lots of our customers about that too. And it's really about seeding that initial idea and helping customers incubate an idea or prove a, prove a concept before they move on. Fantastic. Some great uh, great things for our customers to take full advantage of there. Mm. So Adrian, um, where's the landing spot that uh, our listeners should go to if they're interested in more information? Where's the, the hub of all knowledge around HPC and scientific computing? Well, the first place I'd go would be the scientific computing on AWS website. Uh, so the easiest way to get to that is just to type aws.amazon.com slash psycho, S-C-I-C-O. Uh, into into <laughs> a browser, um, and that will redirect you to the scientific computing on AWS landing page. Uh, and from there, um, you'll get a lot of information about um, how other people are using the platform. Um, some of the some of the programs that I've mentioned, like Global Data Regress Waiver, and so on. Um, and then from there, you can also link off to the Open Data Program, uh, and you can also dive deeper into high performance compute if that's of interest to you as well. So um, aws.amazon.com/slash Psycho, S-C-I-C-O. I don't think anyone's going to forget that one. That's fantastic. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I've really appreciated having you on. It's been great. Thanks, Simon. Great to chat. Fantastic. And thanks, everyone, for listening again. Again, we'd love to hear your feedback. AWS podcast at Amazon.com. Please tell your friends the, that the podcast is fired up and back. Uh, you can get to it on iTunes. You can get it to, uh, to it on our RSS feed, on our website as well, uh, on Stitcher. So lots of ways to consume. And until next time, keep on building.